0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Jason Frank, the author of The Democratic Sublime on Aesthetics and Popular Assembly. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021, and it is a theoretical ex- a sort of examination of our understanding of Popular Assembly and Popular Demonstration and the People um, in Democracies. Uh, But I'm going to let Jason tell us a lot more about that. Um, First, I'd like to welcome Jason Frank to the New Books Network and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Jason.
0: Hi, Lily. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, How I came to this project. I guess, you know, I started thinking about this book mm, about 10 years ago uh, when I was in the process of, of finishing, uh, my second book called Publius and Political Imagination. And, you know, this was around 2011. Um, and as you probably remember, 2011 was a year that was marked by the emergence of, um, a really quite global, uh, wave of, uh, protests against, uh, you know, some of the ramifications and the inequalities that were exposed by uh, the financial crisis of 2008. So I'm thinking of, you know, um, obviously Occupy Wall Street, but uh, the indignados in Spain, uh, you know, what became the the Syriza movement in Greece. And it was was really quite a global kind of phenomenon. Gezi uh, came shortly after that. And all of this in the aftermath of course, the Arab Spring uh, and the revolutions that aco- accompanied the Arab Spring. And, you know, it, it, it got me to think a bit um, in a more sustained way than I had previously about the centrality of popular assembly, the politics of crowds, demonstrations, gatherings of the people out of doors, the centrality of these phenomena uh, to the emergence and really the entire history of modern democracy and, and popular sovereignty across a wide range of, of different histories and geographies. And, and, and the surprise, really, um, on my part, that, that democratic theorists, you know, historians, sociologists, um, cultural anthropologists had written about these phenomena. Um, with with great insight and, and nuance, but democratic theorists really had very little to say about the the central role that popular assembly, which is the term that I kind of broadly use in the book to capture these these different uh, phenomenon, um, play in the modern democratic imaginary. I mean, they're obviously a very important part of, of the ancient democratic political imaginary as well, but. But my work has has really tracked and been interested in dilemmas and um, problems that emerge with the emergence of popular sovereignty as a hegemonic legitimating uh, norm in in the West, and then kind of more broadly, beginning at the end of the eighteenth century, and then you know up up, up until the present day, uh, when I think it's being uh, directly challenged in a lot of interesting ways. So, so you know, I so I came to the project really with that. Kind of political question um, in mind. And I had written a chapter on crowds and, and the communication of crowds in my first book, In Constituent Moments, but, but I really thought that it was worth a much more sustained um, theoretical and historical engagement, kind of with some of the questions of democratic theory front and center in my mind, but also the questions. That I came to be convinced that democratic theory and democratic theorists um, have tended to neglect about the popular assembly, even though, as I said, uh, popular assembly has just been a central part, I think, of the modern history of democracy and is a central component of the modern democratic uh, political imaginary. So that that's the kind of in the broadest sense, you know, that's that's how I that's how I came to be interested in the questions that ultimately uh, led to the book.
1: And and in the discussion of popular assembly, as you're talking about it, there is the, the form that it takes when we think about a legislature um, where we have elected representatives or in the Rousseauian case, you know, sort of the people themselves. But that you're also talking about what happens in the streets
0: yeah.
1: um, and and how are those two points connected in this work?
0: Yeah it's a good question. I mean so you're right I'm in, in this book and it, it it gets developed with the concept of the Democratic sublime um, you know I am primarily focused on uh, informal, protest collectivities that are, I mean, I I love this 18th century phrase. I mean, it's, it's primarily an Anglophone phrase. Um, and as you know, from looking at the book, most, uh, this book is not really focused as much on, on, on the U S case or, or a little bit on, on Britain, but this phrase, uh, gatherings of the people out of doors, um, I think captures, is one way to respond to the, to your question. I mean, what, what 18th century writers meant by that phrase was both literal gatherings of the people in the streets and in the public squares, but out of doors also meant out of the, the formal chambers and assemblies of, of representative uh, political institutions, parliaments, legislatures, And, and I am, am interested in the continued, um, power, uh, and distinctive power really of these informal, uh, collective assemblies in democratic life, um, as, as a distinctive form of democratic representation. They are, they are also democratic representations, even though they are embodied instantiations of of collectivities, but I see them, as you know, um, still as a form of of de- democratic representation. But democratic representation that emerges uh, beyond or alongside the the formal representative institutions of of the state, like like a legislature. I mean, oftentimes the primary claim across a widely varied history of of popular assembly in, in democratic contexts is that you know the people in those formal institutions of representation uh do not actually represent the people. So there is a kind of a, a claim to representation among popular assemblies that is uh, more genuine, more true, more that than the kind of uh in in various ways Unrepresentative institutions or delegitimated institutions of, of the state, but I still want to insist that it is still a representation, uh, but just a, a very distinctive kind of representation. You know, I've, I'm, I'm focused in this book, and this is one of the ways in which this project, you know, links up to, to other debates in contemporary democratic theory on, on constituent power. Um, I'm interested in, uh, you know, these moments when the formal representative uh, bodies of governance are so deeply contested um, that the way in which the people, say, gets converted into an electorate, like a legally authorized entity, are so deeply contested that, that they, in effect, become Uh, deauthorized and they open up a space for different forms of democratic representation that are not reducible to uh, the legally authorized representations of the state.
1: And I had a conversation last week um, with three authors of um, a new book on the phantoms of the beleaguered republic, where they talk at length about the deep state, um, and, and that is about the sort of de- deauthorization and delegitimization of the state itself, um, which is a representative form of government. Um, but before we go there, um, let me let me ask a little bit more about the sort of basic thesis of the book, which is about this, you know, this sort of constructing of, of peoplehood in a certain sense. Um, And in context of this concept of the sublime, or sublime, Um, and you spend a lot of time defining what sublime meant, particularly in the 1800s. Um, and in, you know again, we don't necessarily use that term a lot in terms of when we discuss crowds in politics. Uh, and so I would love for you to explain how this is essentially the 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 thread that holds the thesis together in a lot of ways.
0: sure um, I, I i I think you're right that we um. You know, I meant for the the title of the book and also for its its core concept of the democratic sublime to already in the title be a bit defamiliarizing in the sense that, especially when you're thinking of crowds and, and demonstrations, um, gatherings of the people out of doors, the broader aesthetics of sublimity might not be the first thing that would occur to you as, as a kind of aesthetic concept and and tradition that could give us access into, um, the distinctive dynamics of popular assembly and democratic context. But that is of course what I'm arguing. So, so let me take, I think the best way to answer that question, Lily, is to maybe take a little bit of a step back and, um, I'll, I'll paint with fairly uh, broad strokes here, but one of, one of the. I guess one of the the stories that uh, democratic theorists, at least, but not only democratic theorists, often uh, tell themselves about the emergence of modern democracy uh, in the revolutions of the late 18th century and then into the 19th century is a story of democratic disenchantment, right? And that is the idea, again, broadly, that uh, when popular sovereignty replaces the sovereignty of kings, royal sovereignty, one of the important changes that comes about is that the authority of royalism, which was based on a kind of, you know, you think about the kind of ritualized authority of the person of the king and the pomp and the circumstance that attends royal uh, ceremony and ritual these kind of um, these these portrayals of power in front of a beholden bedazzled but largely passive uh, group of constituency of subjects when that is replaced by forms of democratic self-rule the transformation of subjects into citizens we often think of that process as a process of disenchantment where uh, the authority of of uh, the king and and of, and of royalty is replaced more by a more ratio-critical, deliberative, um, truly representative uh, authority of the people themselves consenting to forms of political and state power based on what they perceive as their interests, what is reason, what is right. There's various ways to, to kind of flesh out this broader thesis of disenchantment. But I think a lot goes, and this is, by the way, you know, this is an important story. You, you find it already at the end of the 18th century in somebody like Thomas Paine in his in his uh, Rights of Man. But you also find it in the work of Jürgen Habermas very influentially in a, in a more contemporary kind of uh, theoretical context. So I think that the democratic disenchantment story is is misleading in important ways because as popular sovereignty becomes uh, an increasingly hegemonic norm of political legitimacy uh, over the course of the late 18th and into the 19th century it also requires entirely new investments of popular imagination Entirely new forms of collective fantasy, you might say. And those, that elicitation of imagination and fantasy occurs especially around the constituent subject of democratic legitimacy, which is the figure of the people. So if you, you know, you can think about, the discourse of the king's two bodies, or kind of ideas of royal authority, where sovereignty is invested in the body of the king, right? And there might be, you know, there are theological trappings to to that discourse, but at least the king's body uh, doesn't have to be imagined. The king's body can be seen; it's, it is at the center of royal iconography. The people's body is never visible in that way. Uh, it it. Requires of the citizenry to imagine that they are a part of this newly sovereign collectivity uh, in a way that 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 requires kind of investments of the imagination that I think are, are wholly new uh, to to uh, modern democracy and that I try to engage in this book. So when you, when you just bring up Lily, the kind of question of. Um, uh, problems of peoplehood, problems of peopling. These are, these are familiar debates in contemporary democratic theory, and not only in democratic theory. I mean, this is, you know, more broadly in political science. Uh, you can look to, uh, you know, back to Benedict Anderson's very important work on the emergence of nationalism, or Roger Smith's more recent work on stories of people we're, we're working in a, in a similar kind of terrain here, although I'm really bringing the questions of democratic theory front and center Um, I have argued in this book that aesthetic uh, considerations are essential, really, for understanding these uh, debates around the contours of the people, how the people is imagined, how democratic citizens imagine themselves and experience themselves. It's not just experience themselves kind of viscerally. To be a part of a newly empowered uh, collectivity, this new sovereign form of of peoplehood. So that is the kind of broader, you know, that the, we. I don't know how much you want to dig into details about like the importance of aesthetic considerations for approaching these questions of peoplehood. It's very important, I, I, I think, to the overall architecture of the book's argument, but. More specifically, now you're asking about the question of the sublime. So, the sublime is a particular aesthetic register, um, obviously. And one of the things that happens over this same period is that the sublime, uh, the aesthetics of the sublime, is what I characterize in the book as immanentized, right? So, sublime experience goes being an experience of transcendence. Um, I mean, you think can think especially of kind of religious transcendence as, as the locus of a kind of sublime experience of that, which um, exceeds human reason, human instrumentality and, and use and so on. But it goes from being that experience of transcendence to being something that is experienced within the secular realm of human action itself. Now, this is a, blo- a broad uh, reorientation, aesthetic reorientation in the West, often associated with Romanticism, um, but it's also something that is engaged by a number of canonical uh, political theorists. In the book, I, I, you know, I have single chapters that go quite into depth and detail, looking at the work of Rousseau and Burke and Tocqueville all of whom i think are powerful examples of this broader immanentization of the sublime um, in the west so one form that that immanentization takes um, and i i lay this out probably most clearly in the chapter called the living image of the people which is kind of the central it's in the middle of the book and and it's it's one of the first things that i wrote it really kind of set the tracks for me, um, for the book's lar- larger argument, is that the people themselves become a source of sublime experience. And because the people are the sovereign, right? The people are the sovereign power. But instantiations of the people in their physically assembled form, um, I argue, become particularly important carriers of this experience of um, the popular sublime. So there's a quote that I return to at, at several times in the book and that I thought about using as an epigraph for the book, but um, for various reasons decided to, to use Tocqueville instead. But it comes from Robespierre, who, who <clears throat> at one point uh, before the convention says, the people must see themselves assembled in order to feel their power so that's the quote this idea of this kind of the being a part of a collective and witnessing kind of experiencing yourself as a part of the of, of a collective that is also more than the empirically gathered people but is a carrier of this broader normative entity of the people you know, the the people themselves, the people is the source of sovereign authority. There's a kind of ineffability to that experience, which is very important to the broader aesthetics of of the sublime. The sublime is, uh, you know, the, the presentation of that which can not be represented. And, uh, you know, I I don't know how much, you- deep into the details of this you want to go, but that, that's the general kind of, Uh, way in which this idea of of popular assembly as a carry of the democratic sublime is kind of framed in the book and then gets developed in different ways across its different chapters.
1: And the chapter that I thought really helped me to understand your conceptualization of the sublime in this context was the chapter on Burke, Um, in in part probably because, as you note, he really spends his time sort of talking about it in a political and philosophical sort of um, context or understanding. Um, and, and so, but you do talk, I mean, it's sort of Rousseau, Burke, Tocqueville at the second half of the book um, who are all sort of working on and you're working through them to understand and see the conceptualization of essentially what is a, you know, the form of the people Embodied and beyond embodied, exactly. Um, and and so, can you can you explain a little bit about how, in particular, Burke, but you know, sort of these these thinkers really helped you to understand this path towards the the sort of sublime as the aesthetic notion for understanding democracy with the people, the the physical yeah. entity of the people.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'll start by saying something about Burke, and then, and and then it might be helpful in answering your question to give you a sense of of, of why the chapters are kind of organized in the way that they are. Um, so you're right to emphasize Burke, uh, Burke's importance to the project. I mean, just in terms of how the project got going, the first thing that I wrote was the piece on on Burke that came out in um, a a different form in a a collection called Political Theory's Aesthetic Turn or The Aesthetic Turn in Political Thought. Um, I thought that, I mean, first of all, Burke is a profoundly anti-democratic thinker. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that because I am making a case that democratic theorists Actually, have a lot to learn from from Burke in the things that he takes to be essential, especially political aesthetics. The the importance of Burke's earlier aesthetics as they are kind of philosophically developed in um, his inquiry into the beautiful and the sublime. How how that basic of uh, work of philosophical aesthetics becomes, I think, essential for understanding Burke's more explicitly political work, uh, whether that be, you know, his, uh, the trial of Warren Hastings and his critique of the excesses and domination of British colonial governance, or especially in the anti-revolutionary writings on France, which is what I obviously focus on here. So In that chapter, I I do make an argument that the experience of the revolution and especially the, um, the, uh, aestheticized appeal, affirmative appeal, the enthusiasm that was generated on the part of British radicals, um, for, for the revolution's promise, not just in France, but kind of in a broader kind of global revolutionary context that they hoped would Uh, lead to radical reforms in Britain itself, that that led to um, a kind of reevaluation and redeployment of Burke's understanding of the sublime, where he more expressly immanentizes it. It turns into a a problem of historicism, the inheritance of the ancient constitution. Um, But it, most scholars of of Burke's work would agree that you can't read a work like *The Reflections on the Revolution in France* um, and really understand the arguments that are being made there without having some clear familiarity with Burke's political uh, political aesthetics. So Burke is, uh, so so you know, Burke is uh, a, a, a canonical political theorist. a, a, a an anti-democratic thinker who nonetheless takes seriously um, the the kind of problems of political aesthetics, especially around conceptions of belonging, peoplehood, the generation of public authority that I am very interested in exploring in a more radically democratic vein in this book. So I'm kind of working with Burke against Burke. I think Burke has much more to tell us on um, uh, we have much more to learn from, from Burke on these questions than we do from his great nemesis, the prophet of modern uh, popular sovereignty, in a lot of ways, uh, Thomas Paine. I'll leave that aside. <laughs> so, so you're right. So I, I have, I, you know, the the, the book, it, it, when I was trying to figure out how best to explore, you know, these kind of broad changes, uh in, in aesthetics and 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 legitimating norms in in political life, the emergence of popular sovereignty. I didn't want to just tell that story through authorial you know chapters focused on canonical uh, political theorists, So I, although I thought it was important to have those chapters, so you could really dig in to some of the the conceptual nuance and 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 rigor. Of of thinkers like uh, Rousseau, Burke, and and Tocqueville, but as you know, you know where the chapters kind of zoom in to focus on these these uh, canonical theorists. Between those chapters, there are chapters that you know I've, I've kind of using these cinematic metaphors that that kind of zoom out and and tell um, broader stories about. The, uh, the change in the iconography of sovereign rule from the 17th century into the early 19th century, a chapter on the poetics of the barricades, um, which were very important to, you know, a broader visual culture and, and literary culture in, in the first half of the 19th century. And that I see as powerful examples of how this problem of the democratic sublime gets navigated, uh, in different art forms, uh, you know, and and that can be anywhere from the, you know, the, the, the paintings of David to the, the, the novels of Hugo. And, and especially, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time on uh, chapter uh, book 10 from from Les Misérables and that chapter on, on barricades but also visual culture woodcuts of barricades. you know I, I thought having a a fairly idiosyncratic but but also widely um disseminated archive I guess for this for this book was important because I was trying to capture something that was going to I think hopefully speak in productive ways to both historically oriented democratic theory, but then also to what I take to be an unfortunate neglect of these questions in a lot of contemporary democratic theory. But it, it's also, you know, it's, it's looking at the memoirs of radicals and it's looking at poetry. I thought it was important to really expand the archive beyond um, canonical works of, of political theory in the West.
1: Yeah. And, and that was, you, you have, you say in the introduction, you use Walter Benjamin's sort of characterization of it not being sort of linear, but a sort of constellation of points um, yeah. that draw together into a whole, um, and and I found that to be particularly useful in guiding me through reading the book, um, so as not to expect that we're going to go from Hobbes to Rousseau to Tocqueville, right. sort of in in an you know sort of way, history of political theory way. Um, right. But I I do want to ask you a little bit more about the focus in particular on um, the role of France um, and the French experience with regard to the multiple different forms of assembly and the people as as really a kind of backbone of the discussion. Um, Because as you note, it's not about the American Revolution per se, um, and it's it's not necessarily about other sort of revolts or um, undertakings, although they are included. It the the French experience is is more central. Um, yeah. And can you explain a bit about why that is the case in this age of revolution?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Do we need another book about the French Revolution? I mean, it's so I, that is true. I mean, I, I think really that a part of, um, look, the motivations behind the book, um, both the political motivations that I said a bit about at the the beginning of of our conversation, um, but also the theoretical motivations um, are are meant to be very contemporary. You know, I mean, that's why I, I did spend a fair amount of time in the introduction. I do historically situated democratic theory. You know, I, I I like being, and I think it's important for for democratic theory to be um, attentive to the the nuances of context. But I, I am not, um, you know, this is not a simple contextual. Uh, I mean, that's a problematic term in a lot of ways too. But, but I think you know what I mean. It's a shorthand. Um, you know, I'm not a historian. And I'm certainly not a historian of, of 19th century France. Um, so so I all of the, the kind of theoretical and political problems around popular assembly and the democratic imaginary that I lay out, both in the long introduction, then in the, the chapter on popular manifestations, which engages with Lafour and, and, and the work of Carl Schmitt, two very influential contemporary democratic theorists, or 20th century democratic theorists, who primarily theorized democracy through their historical retellings of the history of the French Revolution. That was important for me. Uh, and then, you know, I have an after word that engages with Ranciere's work. Um, none of this is to uh, justify limiting the archive to primarily French sources, but it is to say that what I hope to do, and you know, I, this is a a fairly new archive for, for me, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've written on some of these figures before, but my first two books were, were, were really focused on, um, on the United, on the United States. Um, so I became interested in how the, the French sources that I engage in this book, um, you know, I, I, I thought were, uh, productive ways to think about some of the contemporary political and theoretical problems that the book is meant to engage. So there are limitations, of course to and I certainly would never claim that the French case as I reconstructed the French case um, stands in as a as a as a universal example that can simply be, plopped down, uh, and, and, you know, implemented across, uh, a, a wider his period, it, a wider history and across different geographies and so on, not, not at all. Um, I do think that some of the questions that I engage and reconstruct with this kind of constellation with these French sources, I think you're right that, that, that Benjamin idea, which a number of people have taken up. I think that certain theorists mean different things by it, but, um, but, uh, I do hope that, uh, that even though this is a historically situated work, that some of the theoretical problems that I reconstruct here can be productive to theorists and to historians working in very different, um, geographic and historical contexts. Does not mean that there's simply going to be, you know, as I said, uh, Theoretical constructs that will are, are can travel without any blowback of the particular, um, not at all. But I do think the the, the questions I'm interested in are more um, broadly applicable, I guess, than than just the late 18th and uh, you know the I'm looking kind of 1776 to 1848, the the age of revolutions. So yeah, so that's so so that's the hope. I mean, I think that there are particularities to the French context that, that that will not carry and that's fine but I'm not trying to construct a, a, a universal theory here of, of the democratic sublime I, I'm, I'm much more a partisan of, of other people doing democratic theory in these more contextually historically situated ways
1: and I mean that was that was sort of what I found is that you, you reached for examples to sort of flesh out some of these concepts of what it means to be a a people, um, and, and, and activated as such and how to conceptualize yourself as such. Um, and, and that was my next question is, can you dig into a little bit the, this idea of the living image of the people? Um, and which, you know, I, I kept thinking about as I was reading, um, myself having, Marched in any number of marches, myself being a voter, um, talking to students about voting, obviously, and and also understanding themselves as citizens, um, and then seeing on television, of course, these you know shots of the women's march or Black Lives Matter last summer, um, and and sort of understanding what that is in our imagination. Yeah, and how that teaches us a bit about being in a democracy.
0: Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that was so striking to me about um, the protests in Tahrir Square, um, you know, ultimately led to 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 the revolution, is that you know the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that gathered gathered into rear um, eventually started setting up uh, large screens in the square where they could watch themselves being um, covered on uh, the, the international news. I mean, it was this kind of updated version of of the people kind of watching themselves and their power as it is taken up in different contexts and represented to themselves. And that dynamic of collective self-regard and the kind of, the, the aesthetic contours of that experience, um, to me, I think that that was something that really, uh, you know, was kind of in the back of my mind as I was, as I was beginning to, to think about this, this project um, in its early stages. So, uh, so Lily, so, so remind me just quickly, like, so
1: this, this question really broadly of the living image of the people. I mean, your example of Tahrir Square is great, but to some degree, some more of the details of the tension also.
0: Yeah, of course. Okay. So, so what I'm, um, so that, that chapter, uh, you know, begins with debates in the 17th century during the English civil war about where, you know, that is a pivotal moment in the middle of the 17th century for the, 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 the gradual emergence of a new norm of what will become towards the end of the next century, the full blown theory of popular sovereignty is a theory of political legitimacy. But you see emerging, uh, ideas of popular sovereignty in the middle of the 17th century in these debates around uh, the English civil war with, you know, figular, figures like the levelers, for example, but even in social contract theorists, I mean, even in Thomas Hobbes, obviously, you know, who is no, no fan of democracy, he, but, but, but the idea that, um, that, that that public authority ultimately rests in some kind of idea of consent contract uh is is a very important part of that of that history very contested so it's a civil war context but also during that period you have these aesthetic iconographical debates on 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 how the people uh as a new source of public authority can be depicted and represented i mean there was such a well-worn tradition of royal sovereignty and portraiture focused again on the body of the king and the ceremonial authority that emanates from that body. I mean, it's a kind of classically elaborated by Ernst Kantorovich in, in The King's Two Bodies. But what I do in that in that chapter is kind of begin with those debates, look at the debates over uh royal iconography, then. Across the channel, uh, in, in France in the 17th and into the 18th century as a way of setting up, uh, both the, the, the normative, uh, dilemmas that emerge with, uh, the French revolution in 1789, but also the attending aesthetic problems of how to represent, uh, popular will, how to represent the people's sovereignty and, and the kind of intransigent, um, uh, persistence, I guess, of certain kinds of royalist iconography, even into radically democratizing context, you know, figured by, in that chapter, the figure of, of the Hercules the um, as, as the figure of the sovereign people. So the living image of the people, what becomes interesting to me, and I think, Lily, if I had written this chapter now, uh, I would have amplified, I would have brought this point out more clearly, but one of the things that y- you see in the kind of outlined history, I mean, I'm covering a lot of ground in, in that chapter um, and relying heavily on, on uh, historians and art historians to make the arguments that I, that I make there. But one of the things that you see in this movement from kind of the royal portraiture and iconography of the king in the 17th across the 18th century into ideas of how, to, how you depict uh, the new sovereign, this new sovereign form, the people, is that it quit, it, it it leaves the uh, the surface of the canvas. It leaves the uh, the sculptural work in the case of the Hercules and you know David's proposals and so on, which I won't go into in any detail in our conversation, but that are important part of that chapter. And it actually becomes. Uh, embodied in, in physical gatherings of the people, performances, ceremonial performances, especially in the festivals of the French Revolution, which are, you know well known. Uh, Mona Azouf has uh, you know probably the most influential book on it, where Rousseau plays a very important role. But that transmission of, of a, the aesthetic presentation of sovereign form, from a kind of iconography into a living, that is what the living image of the people is. It is an image, it still is a representation, um, but it's one that resists uh, sedimentation or I guess reification because it is actually, it comes to be invested in the collective body itself and not just in the highly orchestrated festivals of, of the, of the French revolution, but ultimately in these less orchestrated, more spontaneous, more um, improvisational iterations of popular gathering and, and, and popular assembly across this democratic history. So that's that, that, that trans, that, that kind of transmission and, and, and there's an aesthetic contour to that experience, but from, you know, the, the, the art object, you might say, into the performance of peoplehood uh, by embodied collectivity themselves. That is an important part of the story I'm telling in that chapter, but I think I would have brought it out more in precisely these terms if I were to rewrite that chapter today. It often happens that way.
1: (laughs) I I understand. I I had been a participant in the Chicago Women's March um, in 2017, And um, we marched, and then we were sitting having a drink later, and the news was telling us that the march had been canceled. And so (laughs) I think this is also somewhat of an example of what you are talking about in terms of my experience and me being told by officials that that there was no march.
0: There's nothing to see here. Nothing happened.
1: (laughs) Because it was so big, they said it was canceled. Okay. Um, that was very much of an aside, um, but, but I did want to I, I did want to bring you towards the the final afterword as you you know you have a preface and you have an afterword which are sort of novel for for book academic books in particular um, and you sort of you know you have this afterwards where you talk about how Rencier is is really the foremost contemporary thinker on this idea of aesthetics and politics as a kind of coda for the book. Can you explain just a little bit about like why he got dropped there? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um, well, look, the entire book uh, is, uh, you know, op- makes a kind of sustained argument for democratic theorists to take political aesthetics uh, more seriously than they have and to engage the questions that I've been, you know, reconstructing, kind of unpacking in the previous chapters around people around the aesthetic role of, of popular empowerment and the particularly uh, distinctive role that collective assembly plays you know, it really is, it's it's about like what political aesthetics can, can contribute to contemporary debates in democratic theory, partly by looking back at canonical democratic theorists for whom these questions were essential, uh, Rousseau and and Tocqueville. Um, I mean, obviously Burke, but again, Burke's not a democratic thinker. So I turn in the afterword to Ranciere because Ranciere Insofar as contemporary democratic theorists or political theorists more broadly have engaged with questions of aesthetics in you know the, the so-called aesthetic turn in political thought, I, I don't think it's controversial to say that Ranciere has been the most influential theorist um, of, of thinking politics and aesthetics together. I've learned a great deal from Ranciere. I've written about him in other contexts and- I, I wanted to kind of return to Ron, you know, Ranciere thinks the relationship between aesthetics and politics through this influential idea of uh, the, the, the partage du sensible, like the, the, the distribution, the partition of the sensible and the redistribution of the sensible. Both aesthetics and politics overlap. They're not the same for Ranciere, but they, they, they overlap and interweave around this question of the distribution of the sensible. So I wanted to kind of revisit that theory uh, with an eye, I guess if I'm adding something to to contemporary interpretations of Ranciere, I make an argument in that chapter that he is developing a distinctive theory of democratic appearance in, in his work. That um, has maybe not been sufficiently appreciated, but that I think, as you say, tacking him on at the end of this historical reconstruction, it it allows us to see that there is this theory of democratic appearance that is important in in his work. And, you know, Rancière himself um, is, you know, his contributions to contemporary democratic theory—I mean, they're not limited to disagreement to the book that you know that has been most important for contemporary democratic theorists—but but he really came to these questions by himself, looking for ten years at the archive of working class protest politics in France in the first half of the nineteenth century. You know, so so I also thought that you know Rancière's own. Uh, his own version of a kind of historically situated approach to democratic theory, I thought, I thought could provide um, a productive juxtaposition, not only for the, the, you know, for some continuities in that we're both uh, interested in the interweaving of aesthetics and politics, but also important discontinuities. I, you know, I mean, I, I think that um Ranciere's, the, the theory of democratic appearance that I I try to build from his work, but also engaging it with um, the work of a, a terrific contemporary artist named Glenn Ligon, uh, who you know, half of the chapter is really on Glenn Ligon's work, uh, a, a series of paintings that he did around the Million Man uh, March. But but that that there's di- there's differences. I think that Ranciere is very focused on the dynamics of. Disidentification uh, in 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 democratic and popular appearance, and you know, in the book, I am I'm not focused on identification exactly. Uh, I think to the con to the contrary, um, but I wouldn't say that the dynamics of disidentification that are so important to Ron Sear's idea of democratic appearance are are the same as as my that that kind of aesthetic contour, the aesthetic contours of experiencing oneself as a newly empowered collectivity that is the source of a newly enthroned sovereign power and and the kind of collective dynamics of that, that is not Ranciere's central preoccupation. And I thought that the juxtaposition would, would help productively, as I said, illuminate both the continuities and the discontinuities between the ways that we are approaching the questions of political aesthetics.
1: And so given the complexity of this book, what are you working on now?
0: Um, Aside from uh, taking a little bit of a break, I I will say, (laughs) no, I'll tell you what, I mean, most immediately what I'm working on, um, I am writing a chapter for uh, a Cambridge history of democracy uh, that, that Sophie Smith is editing on the aesthetics of democracy. So it's obviously going to draw from some of the things in this book, but it is a more broadly pitched, um, project and it's in a much more, uh, historically, um, uh, contextualized volume. So that, that's something that I'm kind of working on right now, but in terms of the next larger project, um, I am, uh, I do already have a book project in mind, uh, and, and the, I'm developing a. A proposal with, I, I think at this point, I should just say like, it's a, it's a, it's a popular press, um, not an academic press. Uh, and, and the working title of the book is, uh, democracy at the end of the world. And basically the book is going to try to contextualize, uh, historically, uh, the, the, the two dominant critiques of, of, democracy and challenges uh to its, I, I would say once hegemonic legitimating norm. I think democracy is facing an unprecedented frontal assault. Um, on the one part, obviously, by, you know, let's just say the the, the broader political rationality of neoliberalism um, and also the different forms of uh authoritarianism uh, party centered uh, or leader centered, um, and I'm I'm trying to, to to show the kind of broader historical roots of these critiques of democracy, and then to really ask if uh, if if the crisis of democracy that so many of us have been thinking about and writing about in different contexts, if democracy has the the resources within it to 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 face. Not just the the theoretically and politically mobilized enemies that are uh, more outspoken and uh, every day, but but also the, the the basic kind of conditions of our present. Whether that means um, the looming catastrophe of of climate change, uh, maybe not even looming anymore, uh, but let's just say the, the the unfolding catastrophe of climate change but also different technological changes, um, that, that pose very fundamental, uh, challenges, I think, to, to democracy's, uh, resilience. So that's, that's the broader, that's the broader project. And it's, it it is going to be a more popular, I mean, it's, it's still going to be a work of democratic theory, but I am, I am interested in, um, in, in, in engaging a more popular audience, kind of bringing some of these theoretical, concerns, hopefully in illuminating ways to an audience that is broader than political theory, democratic theory, or even democratic science. So that's going to be the project of the next book.
1: Well, I hope you'll come talk to me on the New Books Network when it comes out. I would love to chat with you about it.
0: I would be very happy to. I've really enjoyed this, Lily. Thank you.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Jason Frank, author of The Democratic Sublime on Aesthetics and Popular Assembly, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. I assume one can purchase this at Oxford University Press. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to?
0: Oh man, uh, how about City Lights Books or Powell Books? Any of those? Any of those existing brick and and? Uh, um, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll limit myself to those two since I since I do much of my ordering through those through those two bookstores anyway.
1: That's fine. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. All right, thanks, Lily.